Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. On today's episode 15, we will, as usual, cover three cases. The first case for today is Thomas versus Corey, which the Illinois Supreme Court heard last week. The case addresses the meaning of 740 LCS 182.2, which concerns a wrongful death medical malpractice claim as a result of a consented to abortion. The second case we will discuss is the current take on Paul's graph versus Long Island Railroad Company, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And the case is Guyon versus Hernandez, a recent Illinois appellate court, third district case with different facts, but the same principle as Paul's graph. The third case today that Pat and I will discuss is Gladstone versus West Bend Mutual Insurance Company, which was heard by the Indiana appellate court this week. The case concerns important issues related to the admissibility of medical bills and the preservation of issues for appeal. There was also an interesting argument as the court allowed an amicus in support of the appellant to argue for five minutes during that hearing. Before we turn to our first case, like the clock springing ahead earlier today, we're going to spring forward the rule of the week. From time to time, we will speak of a 2615 or 2619 motion. These rules are up today in two of the cases, and the Chicago Bar Association does seminars in each of these important rules. I believe the Illinois State Bar does as well. And as you know, a Rule 2615 motion attacks the face of the pleading. These motions generally must be filed before an answer is filed and fall into a number of bases, including uh, the six common bases for attacking pleadings under 2615, a pleading be made more definite and certain, designated immaterial matter in the pleadings be stricken, that necessary parties be added or misjoined parties be dismissed, that pleadings fail to allege essential elements in the cause of action, that a pleadings uh, fail to state a claim upon which relief may be granted, and pleadings entitle the moving party to judgment. For the first four I mentioned, courts often grant leave to amend the pleadings. Pat, we've also discussed appealable orders. Denial of a 2615 motion is not an appealable order. The fifth basis that pleadings fail to state a claim upon which relief may be granted is one that can be raised at any time, even for the first time on appeal. And the final base judgment on the pleadings can be raised by any party and after the answer is filed. Pat, that's kind of a summary of 2615. Do so you want to tell us about 2619? Thanks, Dan. And uh, this uh, 2615, 2619 thing is, is kind of interesting because 2615 is kind of Illinois' equivalent of 12B6 for those that practice in federal court or courts that adopt that kind of a practice. 2619 is unlike any procedure I'm aware of in any other state. And it's a procedure that is something like a, a Rule 56 or a motion for summary judgment, but it's a situation where you're at the pleading stage and therefore the, the movement on the motion the, has to take all of the allegations, well-plaid allegations is true, and you can't challenge those allegations 
in order to prevail on the motion. You then, what you offer is some affirmative matter that defeats the claim, uh, whether by affidavit or it can be on the face of the pleading if, uh, if it falls within a couple categories. And there are a number of categories, uh, such as the, the court doesn't have jurisdiction on the matter, um, the, the plaintiff does not have legal capacity to sue, another action is pending between the parties, the cause of action is barred by a prior judgment, the action was not commenced within the statute of limitations, plaintiff has been, the claim's been released, satisfied, uh, or discharged in bankruptcy, the statute of frauds applies, uh, claim asserted against the defendant is unenforceable because of minority or other disability or any other affirmative matter that avoids the claim. Uh, typically, uh, motions to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction are brought under Section 5-2-301, which is its own separate rule regarding challenges to personal jurisdiction. So Illinois has taken a rule and spread it amongst three rules, whereas other courts do them in no more than two and in some cases just one. Uh, welcome to Illinois, people. Uh, this, is how we, this is how we do things. many ways to attack pleadings in, in Illinois for sure. And, and as I said, 2619 is a really unique procedure. Uh, and so if, if someone has a procedure in another state that's similar to that, I'd love to hear about it. But it, it's a really, and then you can combine them. You could file a motion called a 2619.1 motion that part of it attacks the face of the pleading and part of it attacks the uh, the affirmative matter. And then you could throw in a motion for summary judgment too. So why not? Uh, you, I have had motions where I filed all three in one motion. That's, that's always fun. So Dan, uh, why don't you give us the facts of, uh, of, or am I doing facts of Corey? Yeah, I think you're doing facts. I'm doing the facts of the Corey. Sorry, folks. So with that background, uh, the Supreme court heard, uh, as it always does, it always hears these big, uh, social cases. That's a big thing that Illinois Supreme court does. Not so. Uh, and this, even though we call it an abortion case, it's really not. It's, uh, in fact, the word abortion isn't in the pleading, as it turns out. But nonetheless, is a very interesting case and raises real policy questions uh, about what the court, or about what the legislature was up to in drafting this statute and issues of statutory construction. So the, uh, the case deals with a wrongful death claim brought against a doctor uh, for an alleged failure to diagnose a pregnancy that based upon a blood test and an ultrasound, the plaintiff claims they should have known. The plaintiff, uh, the mother went through an elective procedure that exposed the fetus, which was in the first month at most uh, of gestation, to uh, general anesthesia, which would have made the uh, pregnancy non-viable. And when it was subsequently discovered that the mother was in fact pregnant, there was a consented to abortion by the uh, by the mother and her and her husband. Um, the tests that were run showed that she was potentially pregnant because the hormone that showed up in her blood could have been consistent with a drug that she was taking, as opposed to uh, being pregnant. And then the ultrasound was inconclusive. So the plaintiff filed a, a motion or a complaint based upon wrongful death of the of the fetus, and the uh, defendants filed a motion to dismiss under 2619A9, as we just mentioned, uh, saying that under the wrongful under section 2.2 of the Wrongful Death Act, 
that the doctor was absolutely immunized against a claim for wrongful death where the death of the fetus is caused by a consented to legal abortion. That is the, the claim of the plaintiff, irrespective of any medical malpractice that may have led to that consented to abortion having occurred. The trial judge, Judge Ehrlich, is a very thoughtful judge. Uh, he sua sponte certified a question under Supreme Court Rule 308, which is which allows a court to certify a question that if it will it will if it will materially advance the litigation and it's a question of law, and he did that. So he issued it in his discretion, and the appellate court, Illinois appellate court, accepted it um, in their discretion. They don't have to accept it. They can say, no, judge, we're not taking that question. And the question that was asked is this: whether Section 2.2 of the Wrongful Death Act bars a cause of action against a defendant physician or medical institution for fetal death if the defendant knew or had a medical reason to know of the pregnancy and the alleged malpractice resulted in a non-viable fetus that died as a result of a lawful abortion with requisite consent. So this was a question, typically the parties draft, one of the parties or both of the parties draft the question. In this case, the judge drafted it. The appellate court answered the question in the negative and held that the wrongful death action uh, could proceed and that Although the cause of action in a literal sense was the abortion, the second paragraph of the statute, which we're going to talk about, the decision to abort or not arose out of the defendant's alleged medical misconduct. Uh, and when they knew under the applicable standard of care or had reason to know of the pregnancy and the second and third paragraphs appear in section 2.2 as an independent as independent paragraphs. And under the facts here, the second paragraph does not nullify or provide an impingement for bringing the cause of action. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about these two paragraphs and about the general purpose of this statute um, and more about uh, the oral arguments? Thanks, Pat. And as you noted, the issue in this case is Section 2.2 of the Wrongful Death Act. Section 2.2 provides state of gest gestation or development of a human being when an injury is caused, when injury any an injury takes effect or at death shall not foreclose maintenance of any cause of action under the law of this state arising from the death of a human being caused by wrongful act, neglect, or default. That's the first paragraph. The so can we, paragraph. can we stop there, Dan, and just try to get at what they're trying to do with that section? And that section isn't an issue in this case. This paragraph, the purpose is, is that if you have, let's suppose a mother, she, the, the uh, child, she's four weeks pregnant, and she gets an automobile accident, and as a result of the automobile accident, the child becomes not the the pregnancy becomes non-viable and they have, she has a consented to abortion, she can sue the person who allegedly caused the automobile accident right. for uh, for the wrongful death of the now non-viable fetus That if she can show that it was caused by that. So that, that's not the issue here, but that's what they're trying to get at. We're not going to get into gestational age right. uh, or viability in trying to determine wrongful death actions in Illinois. Okay, that's go right. on, Dan. I just want to put us in context yeah. to where yeah. we're at. The second paragraph is there should be no cause of action against a physician or a medical institution for the wrongful death of a fetus caused by an abortion where the abortion was permitted by law and the re requisite consent was lawfully given, provided, however, that a cause of action is not prohibited for the fetus is live born but subsequently dies. And this, again, is for consensual abortions, right? The doctors can't be held responsible for that. And, and, uh, it's in, and it's in, and it's important to keep in mind that what the, you know in in line with the Roe decision that this is you know we're not going to go after doctors under this law, and the, it's also important to note that the provided however section doesn't really apply here because this was not a live this was not a uh, 
a, a, a live birth. So that, right. that doesn't apply. Okay, now the third paragraph, Dan. Third paragraph is there should be no cause of action against a physician or a medical institution for the wrongful death of a fetus based on the alleged misconduct of the physician or medical institution where the defendant did not know and under the applicable standard of good medical care had no medical reason to know of the pregnancy of the mother of the fetus. And that was at, at issue in some of the oral arguments about whether or not the physician should have known right by the, as you said, there was a test. It could have been caused by medication that she was on for other things. And so there was a lot of questions about that, about whether or not, um, you know, and the, and the plaintiff's uh, advocate uh, kept going back to the fact that, yes, in fact, there was, they should have known, right, that, that good uh, medical from that test, they should have known that she at least potentially was pregnant and should have advised thusly. And so that uh, brings it into that third paragraph. Or out yeah, of that paragraph. And, and at this stage, they're only at the motion to dismiss stage. I mean, he just, his argument is we just want the opportunity to do discovery and right. find, and find this out. Uh, you know, maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong, but they're looking for, can they show the causal relationship or that they didn't know or had re- no medical reason to know that the uh, there was a the, the the mother was pregnant, and and as you noted, Pat, you know the the Supreme Court and the appellate courts, you know, it's not often that we uh, see this wrongful death act uh, statute. It hasn't been seen very much, you know, in the courts. Uh, the advocate for the defendant did bring up a few cases, uh, Light versus Proctor and Williams versus Manchester. Both of these cases address two point two. But Appelli argued that Light was the case head-on. Uh, one of the justices asked uh, the advocate about the lengthy analysis by the majority in Williams of proximate cause and, and how 2.2 fits into this whole thing, the three paragraphs. Uh, but the ad- advocate noted that Justice Cahill's dissent was the one that was adopted by the Illinois Supreme Court. You know, the court was really struggling here. I think they had questions for both advocates about arguments that they were attempting to have one paragraph of 2.2 trump another one. So uh, uh, the advocate for the appellant argued that uh, paragraph uh, two trump paragraph three. The uh, defendant uh, advocate argued that paragraph three trumped. Uh, Both argued that it's not the case and that they were not arguing this. Uh, As appellate counsel noted, this, is, this was here on a 2619 motion, as Pat mentioned, and it is a question of whether the plaintiff has the ability to try to prove its case and proceed and just get a, a day in court to go through some of these things about what the phys- physicians should have reasonably known about whether the uh, lady was, was potentially pregnant. As Pat mentioned up top, 2619 motions are dispositive on the pleadings. Justice Tice, uh, who's one of the justices on the court, Uh, made clear that this is a heartbreaking case and facts. Uh, But the the question here is really, what was the intention of the the legislature? Both argued from the text and argued its meaning. You know, some of the justices, Pat, and uh, and the advocate for the appellant tried to draw from the fact that the statute was not amended after uh, Williams or Light. Counsel for the appellant urged that there was complete immunity when the death was caused by a consensual abortion. Uh, And and as Pat said, abortion was not pled, but was in the 2016. 22. And so, uh, you know, it's a difficult case um, and we'll, we'll make our predictions later. Uh, but Pat, I think that that covers that case, unless you have anything to add to 
I, I had a, I did have a couple of things, and, and Dan mentioned a two dash six two two. Two dash six two two is the Illinois Illinois Code of Civil Procedure section that deals with an affidavit of merit in order to file a a cause of action against a doctor or a medical institution. You have to have a doctor certify that the claim has merit. There's all kinds of fights about that, but it was mentioned in the in the affidavit of merit from the doctor attached to the plaintiff's complaint. And I also want to go back to the statutory interpretation. Dan mentioned the light case and counsel for Appalee, that would be counsel for the plaintiff below, conceded that light, if they agreed with it, was dispositive of his position. He loses under light. Uh, the Supreme Court obviously isn't bound by an appellate court opinion. It can do what it wants. Um, and and certainly, and that's probably why Judge Ehrlich certified the question, because he had a question as to how this is light good law. You know, light is. I, I think from the argument, the light is. You know, at least several decades old. The um, I think maybe something like that. Okay, okay. So it's several decades old. The 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 uh, statute's been on the books for much longer than that. Um, and so the you know what do you draw from the inaction of the legislature? Can you draw anything from that? Um, there's a whole lot of reasons why a legislature may not take up what will be perceived in the public mind an abortion statute. I mean, the, uh, the you, what, no matter where the state stands on the, you know, the majority of the people stand in the state, that may not be something that people want to want to touch, and it may not tell you anything about what the legislature is intending. Um, so I, I think that's a that's dicey territory, and I doubt the Supreme Court's going to draw much from that, but. Counsel for appellant made a lot of a lot of that, and you hear those kinds of arguments made relatively frequently in the Supreme Court. You know, well, the, Congress is aware of this, and they haven't done anything about it. You know, this kind of a thing. What was the background in which they legislated these these kinds of ideas? Um, and, and I that to me at least is very weak tea. Uh, yeah, especially at the federal can, level, just because Congress has been so ineffectual for the last several decades of, of Congresses, so it's hard to argue that by inaction they tacitly approve whatever uh, court decisions or how things have panned out. Right. And, but so that's the interesting, you know, that that's the, that's the interesting legislative history question because ultimately both counsel for appellant and counselor for appellee are, are starting with the text and they're just arguing what the text means and, ha- and then applying that text to this particular statute and the appellee saying it can't be the law that you can, that you can make it that we can create this huge immunity for doctors where no one else has such an immunity and where this was done it seems for the health of the mother i mean the baby apparently at this point was was not viable and so then there was a question of of protecting the life of the mother and this family is forced to make this horrible decision which they and they decide to proceed proceed to terminate the pregnancy it's it's as justice tice noted a horrible decision are we then going to also say they can't if they can prove it, I don't know if they can prove it or not, that there was medical malpractice that led to them to have to make that decision in the first instance. Right. Uh, in a, a, a like that can't be the law. Now, I don't know if he's right. We're, we're going to find out. It's a, it's a important case, an interesting case. Uh, so lots of, by the way, lots of, uh, lots of sips of your booze for those playing <laughs> the, uh, podium those panel podcast, home. uh, drinking game, uh, I, I'm trying to get everybody uh, drunk this Sunday morning. There we go. Uh, Blue law. What's that plan, by the way? It, well, it, it's it's eleven. It's after eleven o'clock, so um, you, you can buy booze. You could have bought booze in 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 Chicago to to get ready for uh, for for the podcast. 
Dan, with that, uh, why don't we uh, take our first break and come back with Guyon versus uh, Hernandez? Sounds good. At, at the introduction, we mentioned Paul's graph, and every law student studies this famous case. But for those that don't know about Paul's graph, this was a New York Court of Appeals decision from 1928. Uh, the Court of Appeals is New York's highest court, despite the name, not being the Supreme Court of a, of, of a state. A bit confusing. The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in New York is the trial court. Is a trial court, <laughs> and it confuses people because you'll see decisions, right? Especially as a law student or. Other people, they'll see a decision from the Supreme Court, and they'll be like, okay. And you'd be like, no, that's just a trial decision. Uh, Benjamin Cardoza, who would later be an associate justice on the Supreme Court of the United States, wrote the opinion uh, for the New York Court of Appeals. Cardoza is considered one of the great jurists in writing opinions. In this case, the Guyan case versus Hernandez is, is kind of like the Lemony Snicket books, a series of unfortunate events that occur. In the Paulsgraf case, Helen Paulsgraf was waiting at a train station while taking her daughters to the beach. Uh, two men attempted to board the train before hers. One was aided by railroad employees and dropped a package that exploded, causing a large coin-operated scale on the platform to fall and hit Paulsgraf. After the incident, she began to have a stammering issue, and she subsequently sued the railroad, arguing that its employees had been negligent while assisting the man and that she had been harmed by the neglect. Cardozo wrote for a divided 4-3 court, ruling that there was no negligence because the employees in helping the man aboard did not have any particular duty of care to Paul's graph. His injury to her was not a foreseeable harm for mating a man with a package. Cardozo's framing of the matter that tort liability can only occur when a defendant breaches a duty of care the defendant owes to a particular plaintiff, causing the injury sued for, has been widely accepted in American law. Guyon's kind of like that. In Guyon, the plaintiff's damage building was damaged when a, a patron of the defendant's adjoining restaurant drove his vehicle over a parking bumper that was five or four inches uh, tall, those regular bumpers you see in parking lots. The plaintiff filed suit against the defendant restaurant owner, and that claim was dismissed with the trial court finding no duty owed to the uh, building next door and to the lawyer who occupied that building. Uh, and the and, owned, the, and owned the building. And on the building as well. And then the, and, and Guy and the plaintiff uh, contended that the defendant organized a parking lot with head and parking to maximize the, maximize the spaces for the business's benefit and created the risk that was latent and should have known. Uh, the con defendant contended that it was not foreseeable, that there's no duty to protect a neighbor from a trespass. And Pat, uh, very interesting oral arguments, I think, uh, as you'll talk about, why don't you give us thoughts on those and, and the kind of uh, seeming skepticism, I would say, of some of the panel about this uh, foreseeability and this uh, this wide uh, duty that the plaintiff was alleging defendants owed in this circumstance. Thanks, Dan. I, I think one of the to kind of frame the the matter a little more a little more is there's some something there's something peculiar going on here in this case. As Dan mentioned, Mr. Guyon, uh, a lawyer who owns the building, was representing himself. So he's pro se. Now, when we say pro se, I just mean someone represents himself. Doesn't have to be someone who isn't a lawyer. He was pro se. Now, that in and of itself isn't particularly strange. The question is, why wasn't his insurer, that is the insurer of the building, 
there, having brought a subrogation action, having paid Mr. Guyon to repair his building, why weren't they there arguing that? So one has to wonder if Mr. Guyon didn't have insurance uh, on the building. And that may be, it may be because he, it seemed he owned the building outright. And once he owned the building outright, he didn't have an, an obligation under the mortgage to have insurance. So he may have, for, he may have just said, I don't need, I don't need it. Not the best decision, but, uh, and we've actually posted on our, and I'll post again here in the comments in our LinkedIn page, Google Maps is great. Google Maps, you can get this, and it shows the tarp over the building with what seems to be where the damage. You can see the little grassy area in between the parking lot where the Mexican restaurant that's next door uh, was. So you can kind of see the layout here, which is kind of cool. You can kind of see where this happened. It happened in Streeter, Illinois. So this was heard by the third district. So you have this, so the, and this setup had been that way for apparently, you know, 35, 40 years, so, some long period of time. Mr. Guyon had moved into that building, he said, I think in 1979. So right. this setup had been that way. Apparently, the and you can see from the building, the restaurant used to be a Pizza Hut and now is a and now is a Mexican restaurant. Right. <laughs> Pardon me. And so you have. The, so what he was suggesting essentially is they they arranged their parking lot in such a way that instead of parallel parking, you had people uh, face in and they should have put, you know, bollards or something else because uh, it was foreseeable that people would jump these little these little barricades and come in and hit one, a building. One, one of the panel asked, you know, if, if, if Mr. Guyon had any examples of ever seeing these kind of bollards and, a, and a, you know, a more contain parking lot and you know I, I think mr guy and just pushed back right that's not relevant <laughs> but it was a strange uh, kind of kind of a surreal argument it was and and it and it would so so you know he mentioned the, the real defense from the uh from the defendant is we don't have a duty to prevent people from trespassing onto your property you know, this fellow that drove that truck and hit that building left our property, left the restaurant's property, went over to Mr. Guyon's property and did damage to the wall of his building. We don't have a duty to prevent that. Uh, and and as Dan, we mentioned earlier, six. This was on a duty a duty motion, a six one five motion, and there was a suggestion that this fellow may have been drunk. Now I, I, I'm going to guess this is a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant at that. That you know. Alcohol might be served there. I'm going to go out on a limb. And so, but that wasn't pled apparently. And so right. Mr. Guyon brought this up and it's like, well, where's that in the pleading that, that this fellow, I mean, if he was drunk, then that might trigger other issues related to dram shop or, or things of that nature that weren't pled. And uh, there should have been a police report or something, right? If, if, if the police came when the accident occurred, you right. would think that they would have seen invest drunk or. They would have investigated that. There, there wasn't any pleading about that, whether it was true or not. Because again, under these motions to dismiss, you take the allegations of the complaint is true. It wasn't there, you know, th this kind of a thing. But what was really missing from it, from, from my perspective, and I didn't see, and I know those that do tort law in Illinois will re recognize the case of Marshall versus Burger King. Marshall versus Burger King is an Illinois Supreme Court case. The flying vehicle case, uh, I'm just so in Marshall, the plaintiff's decedent was killed while eating at Burger King. The plaintiff alleged that the defendant driver, while attempting to exit the Burger King, caused her accelerator to stick 
something like what is alleged to have occurred here. And as a result, lost control of her vehicle. The car hit a sidewalk adjacent to the restaurant, became airborne, and crashed to the front of the Burger King, striking the decedent and fatally injuring her. I'm sorry, him. The front of the Burger King had half brick and half windows. Not real good for stopping flying vehicles. <laughs> Dan mentioned in Cardozo's opinion about foreseeability. Now, it wasn't foreseeable that this Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg chain of events of an exploding package causing a coin thing to fall to hit Miss Paul's graph and cause her to have a stammer wasn't foreseeable. <laughs> Apparently, it is foreseeable that flying vehicles are going to come and that you need to reinforce your building in such a way that when the flying vehicle comes, people inside the building don't get hurt. Here's why I was wondering where Marshall was. If it's foreseeable that vehicles are going to fly and hit people in buildings, why isn't it foreseeable they're going to jump curbs or parking ballards and run into buildings and cause property damage? I, now, I think Marshall was wrongly decided. Marshall makes no sense to me. The yeah, idea that we're going to reinforce every building that adjoins a road, and if you don't do so, you are subject to uh, um, you're subject to a duty and subject to liability. It seems to be crazy, but Just that's the law. Th think about us as lawyers and those that do SEC work and risk factors. If 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 the Burger King case is true, can you imagine what risk factors you would have to identify? You'd have to say a brick could fall in the sky. Airplane pieces can fall down from a, a an airplane in the sky. There could be all kinds of things, right? It's it's just it takes it to the nth degree of, of ridiculousness of predictability. Yeah. So so I mean, anything just because something can happen doesn't mean it's likely to happen or is foreseeable to happen. It has to be something that's reasonably foreseeable in order to trigger a duty. And, and I'm just not convinced that this was foreseeable. But if it's foreseeable in Burger King. I, I was very surprised that Mr. Guyon didn't cite that case. I'm sure there was a reason why he didn't. Um, but as I'm listening to this argument, all I could think of is flying cars uh, and Marshall. And I'm just like, I, I don't get it. Uh, and, and so, but this case, it's it's an example of everything that is new. Everything is old is new again. This is another case of that. And a case of what you learn in law school, you're going to see again. And here it is. Mr. Guyon in his building that got wrecked by the guy jumping the bollard. I think ultimately the best argument that the defense has is that it wasn't them. It was it was some it was their invitee. Let's assume, and they they even alleged he, they weren't. It wasn't even an allegation. He was their invitee. He, he may have been a trespasser on their land for all they knew. Um, there's no there was no pleading that he had been in their restaurant. I think it's some speculation by Mr. Guyon. I think that's ultimately their best their best argument that. He wasn't, irrespective of the arrangement of our parking lot, we don't have a duty to prevent anybody that comes onto our land from going onto your land. We have a duty to protect people on our land. Burger King is about what happened on their land. Right. This is something that happened. He left their land and went to someone, went to the adjoining land. Right. Uh, good fences, maybe good bollards make good neighbors, but right. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, the, uh, the other thing that I thought was... Uh, a bit interesting with, as you said, Mr. Guyon represented himself. He's pro se. Uh, he uh, very frequently, I, I wrote it down in my notes as I listened to the oral arguments, would, would tell the panel as they asked questions and had their own hypotheticals and talked about things that, that it made no sense what they were saying. 
I, I wrote that down as an exact quote. Uh, that makes no sense and uh, probably not 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 the best approach to to oral argument. <laughs> yeah, you may you may differentiate the hypothetical posed by a justice, but telling them that their hypothetical makes no sense, I can see that not going over well with some some uh, some more snide justices. These justices were somewhat tolerant, uh, uh, but uh, I can see some going. Excuse me now. <laughs> right. It's very similar to the with all due respect, Your Honor. <laughs> Get ready for me to really disrespect you. <laughs> all right. And with that, Dan, I think we'll take our, our second break and come back with uh, Gladstone versus West Bend, which, as it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, is not an insurance coverage case. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 15 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to talk now about Gladstone versus West Bend. Dan, why don't you tell us about this oral argument that occurred before the Indiana Appellate Court this week? Yeah, thank you. In Gladstone, the Indiana Appellate Court heard this case that concerns important issues related to the admissibility of medical bills and preservation of issues for appeal. There was also an interesting argument, as, as we mentioned at the top, as the court allowed an amicus in support of the appellant to argue. I believe they were from the Indiana trial uh, bar. Now, now, it's important that that the defense bar also filed an amicus and was at counsel table, but they didn't argue. Now, I don't know whether that was because they didn't ask or they weren't permitted. I, I doubt that if they had asked that they wouldn't have been allowed to, but the, there was an amicus that was filed by the defense bar organization uh, over there as well. So, in this case, we mentioned Pizza Hut and the Guyon case that the uh, restaurant was a former Pizza Hut. This involved the pizza delivery guy, a 26-year-old student uh, who uh, was injured, as, as we'll talk about. And as the uh, Indiana uh, court post about the case, in this case, appellant Daniel Gladstone is appealing following a jury verdict for $0 in damages for pain and suffering in favor of appellee and Gladstone's underinsured motorist insurance carrier, West Bend Mutual Insurance Company. Gladstone argued that the trial court abused his discretion in allowing West Bend to introduce evidence of his medical bills when he was not seeking reimbursement for medical expenses, but for pain and suffering, and allowing a West Bend claims adjuster to testify regarding a, a pretrial settlement offer. West Bend countered that the trial court properly admitted evidence of Gladstone's medical bills, and that Gladstone has waived any claim regarding testimony of a pretrial settlement offer. And the panel asked much about the rule, rules 401 and 403. Rule 401 is the test for relevant evidence, and it says that evidence is relevant if it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence, and the fact is of consequence in determining the action. In this panel, we'll talk about there's a lot of focus on what of consequence meant. And Rule 403 is excluding relevant evidence for prejudice, confusion, or other reasons. The court may exclude relevant evidence if it is if its probative value is substantially outweighed by a danger of one or more of the following, 
unfair prejudice, confusion, confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. And so the question here is, can the defendant admit medical bills in a case in which the plaintiff does not admit their medical bills and only claims general damages, not special damages? Is an objection of relevance sufficient to preserve the objection that the medical bill should not be admitted that show the insurance discounts based upon the collateral force rule? And there's a lot of discussion about that, as Pat will talk about. And then does a court abuse its discretion under rules 401 and 403 in admitting the bills under such circumstances? And these were the questions that the India Appellate Court addressed uh, and will address when it decides Gladstone versus West Bend an underinsured motorist case in which the insured suffered a broken arm and had $14,000 in bills and claimed future injury that his arm would be, uh, because of the breakage, would have arthritis and be not as usable as it was before the accident. Uh, Amicus for Plaintiff's Bar in Indiana asked for two rules by the court. And the first was that incurred bills, uh, there's a gross amount uh, and the advocate argued for a corollary to Paget that the only issue is general damages. Parties expect that medical bills will not be presented during the case. And then a per se rule, uh, the advocate asked for, that if the uh, advocate is not claiming medical bills, discounts will never be admissible and dis- because discounts don't prove any- anything. Pat, thoughts on the oral argument in which a reference to the yin and the yang was discussed? Thanks, Dan. I want to start here with uh, kind of how Indiana's system works in a couple of ways that are a bit quirky. Uh, The first is, Dan mentioned this is an underinsured motorist claim. So that means that the at-fault tortfeasor, who apparently was drunk at the time, his his carrier paid their $50,000 limit. And in Indiana, in order to resolve those claims, those get tried. So there's insurance all over this case. In fact, the case is styled Gladstone versus West Bend Mutual. And the case is in the nature of both a tort and a contract action. And I I don't, it wasn't uh, disclosed how much an uninsured motorist, underinsured motorist coverage Mr. Gladstone had, but let's assume it was a quarter of a million dollars. So this case is about whether he gets another 200,000 on top of the 50 he already recovered. And the jury knows he's got the 50. So they know he's got the 50 on 14 in bills. Um, and so then they didn't award anything more than that for the pain and suffering, which is all he was seeking. Okay. Put that to one side. In Indiana, you have this Stanley rule and Stanley is an, as an Indiana Supreme court case that says, unlike Illinois, you can introduce the, as a, as a measure of the reasonable value of the bills, the dis, the amount that was actually paid to uh, satisfy those bills, even if that was from insurance, even if that was from a government source. That's the Paget case that Dan referred to, a subsequent case. So, in this, so in order to get around that, many plaintiffs in Indiana, when they have a break like this, uh, you know, a fracture type injury, and the bills to f- repair a fracture where there's not an open reduction internal fixation or other surgery, where the bills aren't all that high, they won't introduce the bills. So it never comes up. So what the, the defense, what the defense did in this case, they introduced the bills and the plaintiff objected, said this case is not about bills. This case is about pain and suffering. What's bills have to do with that? Uh, and they did that because the $14,000 in bills were satisfied for $2,000. Uh, and obviously it's, or it seems that the jury found that pretty, um, pretty persuasive. And on its face, 
it seems, well, yeah, what do bills have to do with this? And I thought that the defense made it, or the, the appellee here made a very interesting argument. He said, well, yeah, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's very much like we admit car accident photos to tell a jury what the forces of the accident were like. And there's a case in Illinois called Peach versus McGovern that deals with this. You're not required to introduce uh, expert testimony on the amount of forces. You can, but a jury in their lay experience can look at photos and say, yeah, there's not very much damage to the vehicle. There likely wasn't very much damage to the humans, the soft parts inside, because the hard parts outside didn't get hurt. And it works in very much the same way. And that's not a bad argument. And Dan mentioned 401 and 403. Now, Indiana applies or uses essentially the uh, Illinois or the, the federal rules of, of evidence, like, like and essentially the format that Illinois now uses as well, even though the substance is much different. Indiana hues much closer to the federal rules of, of, of evidence. And I remember before we before uh, the pandemic hit, uh, Judge uh, Dooling, I think it is, in, in, in uh, Cook County, she has a little sign in front of her bench uh, that says rule 403. <laughs> it's right there. Every, you know, anyone walking in her courtroom, the first thing you see after the seal on the wall is in rule 403. Rule 403, as Dan said, is this balancing between prejudicial and probative. Why does that matter? Why, why does this Peach versus McGovern deal matter? Why do the bills matter? Is because they do they tend to prove a thing? Not are they dispositive of the thing? Do they tend to prove the thing? And if they tend to prove the thing, the question then becomes, is it outweighed by the prejudicial effect? And the court in this, and that's that's decided, as we've talked about before, on the, I think on the first podcast, about abuse of discretion. Evidence is admitted and decided on whether it's an abuse of discretion by the trial court. So as we talked about on that first podcast, the, the appellant here has got a high burden of showing that no reasonable judge would have done what the trial judge did in this case by allowing this evidence to come in. And that's where this per se rule advocated by the, by the plaintiff's bar is really difficult because you're really, you're rewriting for the purposes of medical bills, what 401 and 403 say. Uh, and and I, I think that's going to be hard for them to, to do uh, in, in this particular case. So that, that's the, the kind of the landscape here. Uh, and an important case because as I, I practice over in Indiana, handle cases that are like this, and this is the strategy that is typically used. Uh, plants just don't introduce the bills and say, "All right, now, 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 what are you going to do? Uh, I got a fracture. Well, your fracture—you had like no therapy. There was no surgery. What do you mean? It's it's still it's still not a nothing injury. And in this, in this the case, bills give the, some indication of that. The, the injured party. There was was some discussion about that that the you know, method of treatment and delays may have, may have exacerbated anyway is, you know, pain and suffering and the full recovery. That's right. And that may have been another factor that weighed in the jury's, the jury's uh, mind. In addition to, he already got the 50 grand. Um, the other, the other thing that's important here is the preservation of the objection by simply objecting to relevance and not raising specifically it's in his oral objection, at least the collateral source rule. Now, Without that, the collateral source rule is the idea that you don't get to enter in evidence, evidence of what someone else paid to satisfy a bill. You only introduce the billed amount, uh, and that by entering this is it's the complete objection as to why, and is it sufficiently per, is it sufficient to just simply say relevance? And there's my brief over there that I filed in limine 
to preserve the objection. And, and I, maybe in this case it will be, but it certainly is a question. We talked about it in Arkbauer about preservation by trial counsel, uh, where they didn't re-raise the objection on a, on a denied motion in limine. Preservation of the record is really important. Um, and, and it's, it's difficult for trial counsel. You can't remember everything. Uh, and, and so I don't know if they're going to ding him for that because they may just find it wasn't, it, it was within the trial court's discretion to allow this evidence in. Um, but, a but an important case for a lot of tort cases in Indiana, uh, as to what comes in and, and, and what doesn't, uh, Dan, do you have anything else to add on Gladstone before we turn to, uh, prediction sure to go wrong? No, I, I don't. And I, I don't practice at all in Indiana. So. Pat, Pat's much more attuned with the, some of the nuances there. And, and speaking of predictions, sure to go wrong, Pat, uh, we're now six for six to an extent. In predictions we're going to call it six wrong. for six. We're taking six for six. I don't care. Yeah, we are. Six for six. <laughs> and, and, and the reason for that is we thought in episode six that Uzik Boonham had a good shot of having nom- nominal damages be sufficient for his First Amendment claims to survive, while fo- fellow plaintiff Bradford, who claimed he did not act due to the chilling of what happened at Uzzah Boonham uh, had a harder time and the Supreme Court of the United States agreed. Pat, do you want to mention that case? And it's again, it's it's the case about uh, being able to express uh, religious views on a public university campus. The campus had installed rules that prevented Uzzah Boonham from being able to do things. And then he uh, followed the petition things and then they gave him some other uh, reason for why he couldn't. Heckler's veto. Heckler's veto. And then uh, he sued. And, and the only thing that was uh, outstanding was a nominal damages claim. And as Pat and I talked when we talked about this case, the importance of uh, First Amendment and Bill of Rights cases is that there are not, you can't measure the loss of a right under the First Amendment or any of the other uh, Bill of Rights that are so important to our individual liberties that uh, the uh, fact that the nominal damages is, is what's in existence uh, seems to 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 be sufficient. Dan, that that's that it, legally that's right on. And but I, I what I want to talk about with this case is some of the procedure. The procedure is really interesting. This is the first case in 15 years where Justice Roberts has written a sole dissent, and. So what happens when the chief justice, who is last term, I think he was in the majority like all but one time. I mean, he's not even, not only is he not in, not only is he never writing sole dissents, he's never in the minority. He's always in the majority. And what does it mean when any chief justice, but this chief justice in particular, on a court composed as it currently is, what does that mean? Well, what happens when, the chief is not in the majority. Well, if he is in the majority, he chooses who writes the opinion. He can assign it to himself. He can assign it to somebody else in the majority. Irrespective, right. ideology has nothing to do with this. He's, he's, he's senior by, by his status as chief justice. That's exactly. one of the few powers that chief justice has. But if he's not in the majority, then the next most senior justice in the majority chooses who writes the opinion. The opinion here was written by Justice Thomas which means that Justice Thomas chose himself to write the opinion. We know this. This is what happened. Now, this is a standing case. And if everyone remembers our discussions of standing, 
Justice Thomas has been leading the charge, starting with Spokio, on standing. This has been a thing that he has really caught on, and the other justices, irrespective of their ideological bent, have also picked up on. They've all agreed. That, I mean, the 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 cases involving uh, many of the challenges to uh, the election were about standing. Uh, that's that's what this this cuts across ideological um, ideological bent. So he picked himself to write a standing case. And so what that means is, is that with the appointment of Barrett, the, the court shifted to the right in such a way that on 5-4 decisions or 5-4 decisions, uh, on Roberts is going to find himself in the minority and Thomas is going to be the one picking who's right in the opinion. Right. And, and so this is the first example of that because Justice Roberts has so infrequently been in the minority, in this case, a minority of one. Uh, so that really is something. It could be a per, uh, a preview of coming attractions in terms of how opinions get written, who writes them, and what the what the makeup of the court is. This is the this is the structural change that has occur that will occur potentially with having a six person conservative, generally conservative majority on the court, and essentially, and I think we, I, we would all agree that. Justice Roberts is probably the least, that's the wrong word, but the least conservative of the conservatives uh, on the court um, in, certain, in, many, in, in many ways. It also is an important case where he really went out of his way to protect an institution again. Um, he is really an institutionalist. Uh, and this was him saying, well, they mooted the case by agreeing not to do it anymore. Well, that's and really I, unsatisfying. I, I, wrote, I wrote my Chicago Daily Law Bulletin for, for Monday. Uh, on his dissent, and it's, there's some rich irony here because uh, within months of, of Justice Thomas being confirmed, he wrote the first of many solo dissents in his career. He, for many years, was the solo guy. In recent years, he's dissented and had one or two, Gorsuch sometimes, Kavanaugh sometimes. He might get Roberts occasionally, but he, you know, often still is in dissent, but, but he, at the same time, you know, over the last several terms has really become, as Pat said, outstanding and some other issues of stare decisis and looking at some cases that, that have existed for, for many decades. He's uh, may may have a following that, that makes it interesting that he will be, you know, leading the charge on some of the things uh, that uh, we, we would probably not have expected, I would say, you know, as, as recently as five terms ago. He is he is um, extraordinarily consequential in how he has moved to the court over the time that he has been on the court, and given his age, a long time perhaps still to go. Uh, he is an extraordinarily consequential. His thinking has been influential in ways. Uh, there's a great podcast from the uh, from the Pacific Legal Foundation called Dist uh, that I would recommend. Uh, it, it's done by two young uh, lawyers there. And they talk about the influence that dissenting opinions can have. And one can look at what some of the dissents that Justice Thomas has written and how those may over time, especially given the, the current composition of the court, um, come to become the law over time in, in a way that really wouldn't have been would not have been expected in a way that Justice Scalia did when he first came on the court in how you have justice like Justice Kagan saying we're all textualists now. That would have been unthinkable prior to Scalia uh, being on the court. All right. Uh, have we, have we beat that horse to death? I think we have. 
All right. So prediction sure to go wrong, Dan. Uh, Thomas versus Corey. Um, I guess we have to say how they're going to answer the question or are they going to affirm the, the, the answering the question, the negative from the appellate court, or are they going to uh, reverse? I, I think they're going to say that the wrongful death action can proceed uh, based on this kind of, uh, you know, go back and see what the physicians knew about, uh, you know, going to some knowledge and, and get past the motion on the pleadings. I think they're at least going to give the def- the, the plaintiff a chance. Uh, that, to see. I mean, maybe yeah. they can prove it. Maybe they can. I don't know. Right. Counsel was counsel for Appleby was clear. He wasn't sure if he could prove it, but he said, give me the chance to. I think I've got the goods. Yeah. Um, and then that brings us to uh, Guyon versus Hernandez. Uh, I, I, I think we're looking at an affirmance here, too. Uh, not not favorable to uh, to the plaintiff here uh, who had got a big hole in his building. Dan? I agree. And just based on some of the panel's questions about what, what the restaurant could have done in terms of foreseeability and what kind of parking lot they could have put together. And uh, yeah, I think, I think plaintiff loses here. And then what brings us to Gladstone, I, I, I don't see a, I don't see a reversal here, but I also don't see a per se rule. I don't, I don't see everybody getting everything that they want. Um, I, I see them leaving this in the hands of the trial judges to figure out what they want to do in a given case, uh, giving some uh, affirming the, the discretion the trial judges have for the admission of testimony and evidence. I agree with you. And, and just from listening to the oral arguments and some of the pushback on those on that per se rule that was being requested. And it seemed like there's some skepticism from the bench about, as you said, tying the hands of trial court judges in terms of how they operate under these 401 and 403 rules. All right. And with that, Dan, I think we're done for this week. We may have a special episode uh, this week, folks. So be on the lookout for that in the event we're able to get that scheduled. Uh, and if, if not, we will see you next Sunday. For Dan, this is Pat. Thank you for listening to the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.